You're listening to a podcast by the Leadership Ministry Team at Texas Methodist Foundation. TMF's Leadership Ministry connects diverse, high-capacity leaders in conversations and environments that create a network of courage, learning, and innovation in order to help the church lean into its God-appointed mission. For more information, visit tmf-fdn.org. Imagine some of our largest water reservoirs. In Texas, there's Lake Amistad on the Rio Grande or Lake Travis near Austin. Some reservoirs are natural, like the Great Lakes, but most are created by people to enlarge capacity for managing disturbance in times of extreme weather. Damming up rivers prevents flooding in times of heavy rain, and it provides additional water in times of drought. Although not their primary purpose, these large reservoirs frequently become sources of recreation, economic activity, and renewal. A reservoir lies ready, waiting until it is needed. In a reservoir, there's always more than enough. In our own time of extreme disruption, I believe we need reservoirs of the Spirit that can sustain people of faith as they navigate the changing cultural landscape, as they expand their capacity for resilience in healthy communities, and as they create new communities in situations where a threshold has been crossed. This podcast is about resilience. Resilience in a season when ordinary sources of spiritual nourishment are not adequate to the uncertainty and loss so many people are experiencing. For people of faith to thrive in such a time and continue to build toward the world that God imagines, I believe we will need to drink deeply from reservoirs of the Spirit particularly the dimensions of hope, purpose, and courage. Welcome to Reservoirs of Resilience. I'm Lisa Greenwood, Vice President of Leadership Ministry at TMF. You just heard Bishop Janice Huey reading from her recent publication entitled Reservoirs of Resilience, which inspired this podcast. Thanks to all of you who are joining us for our second episode. As with every episode, Bishop Huey will begin by sharing an excerpt from her writing on resilience. And then we will dig deeper into the topic with our guest and end the episode with our takeaways from the conversation. Our topic today is the Reservoir of Hope. And our guest is Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett, President and CEO of Houston Tillotson University. Dr. Burnett shares incredible wisdom about resilience and leaves us inspired and challenged for the work before us. And let me just say that her vulnerability and the leadership she demonstrates even through this conversation is remarkable. I am so excited and grateful to be able to share this insightful conversation with you. But first, to tee up the conversation, here's a brief reflection from Bishop Huey's writing on the Reservoir of Hope. In a season when nothing seems normal, 
when disruption and disappointment surround us like endless desert. It is time to drink deeply from the reservoir of hope and to take public steps to embody that hope in action. Almost 40 years ago, John Gardner, the founder of Common Cause, wrote, if people are apathetic, defeated in spirit, are unable to imagine a future worth striving for, the game is lost. Without hope, we find ourselves mired in the present or even the past and cease to lean toward the future. The energy to imagine, create, and build just dissipates into thin air. Hope is not the optimistic view that everything will turn out all right in the end if everyone will just do what we do. At its best, such an understanding of hope is just wishful thinking. At its bleakest, it turns toward denial. Hope that is crushed by the first defeat or failure helps no one. Hope is both a noun and a verb. When we speak of hope as a noun, we are usually referring to hope as a feeling. In fact, we often use the word hopeful to indicate that in some meaningful way, the future will be better than the present. Hope as a noun is a nice sentiment, but it doesn't have much power. Hope as a verb is potent. It's relentless. It calls for hard work. When we hope, we choose to believe and act as if the future will be better than the present. Hope as a verb is faith turned into action. In that sense, hope is a virtue by we learn by practicing. Hoping is like practicing a difficult piece on the violin or learning a tricky dance step. Hope is a verb grows out of the faith that God hasn't quit, that light does shine in the darkness. People of hope make a deliberate choice to move toward the light. That is, they act. They consciously choose life over death. They act with resilience. Joining us in our conversation about Reservoirs of Hope is Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett. Dr. Pierce Burnett is the first female president and CEO of the historic Houston Tillotson University, Austin's oldest institution of higher learning and only historically black college and university. At Houston Tillotson, she adopted a set of core values with the acronym IDEAL, integrity, diversity, excellence, accountability, and leadership which guides all things and all people of Houston Tillotson, from operation to students to faculty and staff. She inspires over 1,100 students and over 100 faculty and staff members. And inspires is the operative word here. Every time I've been in Dr. Burnett's presence, I have been inspired and challenged. Dr. Pierce Burnett is a strong proponent of historically black colleges and universities, as well as civic and community engagement, currently serving as co-chair of the mayor of Austin's task force on institutional racism and systemic inequities. She has won numerous awards and honors nationally and locally that really are a testament to her leadership and her commitment to change. 
She is an advocate, an organizer, an encourager, a truth teller, and a beacon of hope. Welcome, Dr. Pierce Burnett. We are so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm humbled. I'm honored. Every time I hear the introduction, I get weepy a little bit because it's not me. Like I'm, 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 a, I'm clearly a vessel. So oh. I pray that it makes me weepy for some odd reason. Yeah. Well, you are a true hero, and we're delighted that you are um, in the Austin community and that you are with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we're we're talking today about how people can draw on the reservoir of hope to make it through difficult times. And we want to begin with an invitation for you to share a personal story or one that is close to your heart about how hope has helped you to be resilient. The story has been coming in my mind a lot lately. I actually did a speech about it, but it keeps resonating with me for some reason. So that question, here's another space where it shows up in my life. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was one of 18 children, same man, same woman, astounding, a couple sets of twins, still 18 births. And he's from Mississippi, Brookhaven, Mississippi. They lived in the county. And just a, a long story short, um, he recently, he's, we've had, we've experienced some deaths because they're all getting older. And we're very fortunate. My dad is one of four that are living. And he recently lost his twin. And um, he was telling my sister and I this story that he's never told before, but as he was telling it, I could tell he was reliving it. And very quickly, when he was 15 or 16, he's not real sure, they went into town to get supplies. And my grandparents were sharecroppers there in Mississippi, and they were getting supplies, and he was at the gas station with his dad. And his mother was out getting supplies at one of the stores and so because they lived out in the county. So he said that all of a sudden he remembers seeing his mother run towards the truck, and there was a white guy behind her yelling at her, screaming at her, chasing her, and saying absurdities. And as she got to the truck where they are, he kicked my grandmother to the ground. And in that moment, my dad went to go and defend her against the guy. And his father grabbed him, put it, threw him in the truck, and they use my dad's words, hightailed it out of town. So my dad told me that in that moment, he lost some respect for his dad in his mind at that time as a 15 or 16 year old young black man, because he didn't defend his wife, they ran. Um, at that moment, that was his feelings. So that night they put the twins, my dad and his brother, his twin, Michael Carl, on a train to Chicago. And that was, you know, that's the era of the great migration to the um, north. So they ended up in Chicago and they actually changed their, um, they, they lied about their age to get in the military and they went and served in the military and then came back to Cleveland and started their lives there. So there's so many elements of that. So I'm compressing the story very quickly for obvious reasons. But so when he told my sister and I that, it just explained so much to me about my father and the man he is because he's, he's smarter than I am, but he didn't have these opportunities that I have right now. So, but he instilled, like I thought that, the, that college was the 13th grade. <laughs> it was not an option. And they, they, my parents, I'm first generation know the term that we pass around now. Yeah. And I saw now as a, as an adult, I see how that kind of hope was instilled 
in him for his own children, my sister and I. And I've been really processing a lot now because I'm reading the book um, about the history of the nation cast and about the history of, of my own people, of, of, of black people in this country. And so much of my own life is coming into play. I mean, I, I understand it. So I'm hopeful that in my children's lifetime or their children's lifetime, we as a nation will continue to get to this space of equity every round with every generation. Because if we, if I think about the people that marched across the Selma Bridge and people like my father, if they had just kind of given up and succumbed to the lifestyle that had been di driven to them, I wouldn't be sitting here as the president of Houston Tillis University having this conversation with you right now which is why I've committed my life to the mission of historically black colleges, because that was their purpose was to educate a people. I mean, that was their purpose because we were ostracized and could not go to other institutions. And I think sometimes we forget about that, about how people were treated and how they felt like, how would I feel if I can't go to the university of Texas? So these schools were founded to bring out the brilliance and the genius of people who were not just simply marginalized or ostracized. And we kind of think that that was back there, but the ramification, just like we still have the ramifications of 9-11 with the T Transportation Security Agency, the TSA, mm -hmm. we're going to have ramifications of COVID for a long time to come. We still as a nation have ramifications of the era of slavery, which lasted, you know, 250 plus years as a true sense of what we consider until we were quote unquote set free. So your question is that that story, it actually, it broke my, my heart, my spirit, but then it gave me hope because it just helped to redefine my father or my family as Pierce's, which is a conversation we were talking about earlier as, as a Pierce, as, a, as Pierce's of, you know, what that meant to my, my own history. And there's a thing that people say on my ancestors' wildest dreams, because my ancestors would never have thought that um, my sister was a White House appointee under the Obama administration, and here I sit as the president of a university, and they would never have anticipated that. That is such a powerful story of resilience, of hope. And what is so uh, meaningful to me is that it's multi-generational. Mm -hmm. And there is this sense in which hope and resilience are, um, the, and the stories we tell about them are passed from one generation to another. Thank you um, for sharing that. to what you said and kind of one of the ideas about hope that has been important to me is that the word itself, linguistically hope, is both a noun and a verb. So when it's used as a noun, it almost always refers to the feeling like being hopeful. I mean, it's hope. But as in the story you told, hope in its best sense is an action. And that's why it matters that hope is also a verb. So could you talk a little bit more about how you've experienced and perhaps even try to communicate to others how hope is not only a noun, but in its most effective form, it 
is about action. You know, I read something, I don't remember who, so I can't um, give credit to who, who, what writing I was um, reading, but they were saying that the most powerful things in our, most powerful forces in our lives are things we cannot touch. Mm. They're forces like love. You can't touch it. Mm. It's an action. It's a feeling. You have to do something to express it, but you feel it inside like wind. You know, it's also a verb and a noun, like it's windy. The, the wind is blowing. Um, and hope is that same thing. It's that, it's that same thing where you, it's, it's a, it, actually it's a call to action mm-hmm. that you're asking people to put their hope into action. Mm-hmm. So for me, in my capacity here in Austin, I serve as the mayor's, as a co-chair of the um, Mayor Adler's Task Force on Institutional Racism and Systemic Inequities. And often people get really frustrated about dismantling racism. So you, you have to be hopeful in your actions, because if you don't do anything, you're, if you hope that things change, but then you don't do anything to change them, you're not really putting into action your hope. It's just like our faith. It's a, that's, that's, that's something that we have to consciously do to be faithful. The whole concept of a mustard seed, you just need a little bit of mustard seed, which is an action. So so in my work here in Austin with, with, the, with the task force, we would meet with audience of people that were super discouraged because of the history of Austin and some of it, the, the scars and the wounds. So by a call to action, I'm telling them you have to Take that hope that you have that we will live in an equitable, beloved community, an equitable society, beloved community, and do something with it in your own sphere of influence. Don't tolerate bad jokes because people think that they're they're helpless. There's nothing I can do. But in your own sphere of influence, you'd be surprised what you can do to dismantle racism just as everyday citizens and in, in what you tolerate and what you don't tolerate in your own life, which fuels your own hope because you start see, seeing this progress over time. So it's just like it's a feeling, but then it's a feeling that requires you to do something to exercise it. Because if you're hopeful without action, you're not you're not doing your part, which what Muhammad Ali called your it's your the rent you pay to be on earth. Mm. That's your service to the community. Your 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 being your your hope. Um, the word is your hope manifesting itself into a call to action and you actually doing something about it. Because if I'm sitting here in my office and I hope my students persist, but I'm not putting processes in place for them to persist, then there's no power in my hope. I, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's empty. So just like love, if I love you, I never tell you, I never show you, I never do anything to, to manifest that love or to make you feel loved, then I'm not, I'm not really loving you if I'm doing that in silence without supporting you or whatever, however, what kind of ever love that is. I love that. And I, I love this sense that of, of your ability to encourage others to keep going, even when it's hard. And I'm, I'm wondering what gives you hope and, and helps you have the energy and drive to keep going, even when it's really hard commencement (laughs) (laughs) okay I think there's a lot in that can you say more (laughs) during the last nine months 
um, three of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my professional career have been in the last nine months. Mm-hmm. One was us deciding to stay online for the summer and into the fall and now into the spring because of COVID-19 and how um, the disparities in how my population that I serve is more affected and we're more vulnerable. Um, it was a very hard, de- that was a hard decision. We held, we were, after making that decision to close the campus to instruction and have everything virtual, we were um, approached by some the young black activists here in Austin, Austin Justice Coalition and the Austin community community to be this the space for the rally for the Black Lives Matter march here in Austin. And that was a hard decision for me to open the campus up to that, and which we did. Then the third one was for us to postpone commencement for the class of 2020. Mm. And that was, for, for me personally, I took a lot of heat, you could imagine, because it was before we really knew a lot about the virus. It had not killed so many people. So you can imagine the frustration from the students and their families. So it took a lot of heat about it, but but just people didn't understand, except my family. That was for me a personal hard decision because my love tank gets filled up at mm. commitment. Um, we don't graduate individuals, we graduate families because 45% of our students are first generation. So we're breaking the poverty cycle by by educate by giving them a credential to make them to give them opportunities to make them more marketable for them to move to graduate school into the workforce etc. So when I stand there in my you know regalia my cap and gown and I look out to these two three two hundred two hundred plus students with five thousand people on our campus we have five thousand people on our campus at least it gives me great hope. And it makes me, it gives me great, it fills my tank to do it again. Despite the challenge of the financial aid, despite our fiscal fragility, despite the battles that we have for our students to be treated equitably on internships, to get internships, despite the battles that we have with affordability, it's expensive to pay poor people. The challenges I have with good, with finding good quality, high quality people when we lose high quality people. So all those are frustrating for me and all those make my job hard and all of them really, frankly, make me want to quit sometimes. I go to bed feeling, what am I doing? But when I get to commencement or when I see a student on campus and they're like in their own joy, in their own space, and they're they're just little sponges bouncing around, um, growing up, that inspires me. And I think I see inspiration as hope as, inter, as intertwined. So they inspire me and they give me hope. So when I get to commencement, I'm basically out of gas and I get my little love tank filled up. And then I'm, you know, I'm June, July, August, we bring in those freshmen and we go at it again. That's such a wonderful image. I don't think I'll ever think of the word and or the reality of commencement again without thinking about you and your telling that story, what it means to to ha- have arrived at at this place and it be a beginning of something altogether new and filling up your love tank um, uh, while you're at it. So wonderful. So Rabbi um, Jonathan Sachs, I mean, who, um, wonderful teacher, passed away very recently, and he was quite the um, scholar, and he wrote um, at some point that, that all of the prophets 
even the most pessimistic ones were agents of hope. That phrase, agents of hope, and how it's connected to the prophetic tradition. When you think about that um, from your own um, biblical background and, and your own sense of faith, which is so deep, I mean, how what does it mean to you to be an agent of hope? And who's been an agent of hope? for you. And how would you tell our listeners or encourage our listeners to be agents of hope to one another? In this day and age, in this era that we're living in, um, particularly with COVID-19, how it has shown the light on the challenges that we have as a nation with the disparities in healthcare, the disparities in education, the disparities in income. These things are not new. They've just been compounded and they've been this light, someone's coming with this really bright light and shown it to us. And um, it almost feels a little bit in my space, in my world, my laity, it feels a little bit divine because everyone was made to sit still. We you know, couldn't go outside and play, we couldn't do everything that we were doing once upon a time. And then all of a sudden we have the George Floyd, we have Brianna, we have all these things happen that get sh- that shakes everybody to its core because we couldn't run from it. It was right in front of us. So now we know. And so what will we do? So synonymous with an, a, an agent of hope is an agent of change hmm. because we can retreat back to where we were or we can really change. You know, we can really, we have a lot of people, irrespective of your politics, are hopeful in this new administration. Um, A lot of people are hopeful that we will, you know, regain people to have faith in their spirituality or lean into their spirituality because people have really seen death up close and personal. It's been a very traumatic time for us. People have lost people and you have no control of your life. And we're also experiencing a sense of loss because, you know, on February 1st, we were just bouncing around living our lives. And then come March, April, that's gone, never to be returned to us again. Even the concept of washing our hands, you know, and hugging people, um, you know, and being close to someone, that's that's going to be with us for a while as, as, as people. So when I think about a, an agent of hope, I want to be an agent of change so that we can stand firm and say, let's not forget where we are as a nation and what can we do to truly, Dr. King called it, he said the moral arc of justice, the moral arc does bend towards justice slowly. Hmm. So now we've got more shoulders. Um, A faculty member said this to me the other day. We have more shoulders leaning on that arc, pushing it harder because more people have been made aware of the deep challenges that we have as a nation with the inequities and the disparities and the hate and the, the, the division. I mean, all that's like right in our faces and we could choose to ignore that or we can be hopeful with action and have now we have more shoulders leaning on it than we had before because it's not new. You know, this fight for equity we reached equality in the 60s with the civil rights movement and everybody went to sleep, but we did not reach equity. So, so the challenges persist and many are not affected by it so they don't feel it. And, and higher education is a, is a part of that divide. We add to it. 
because of the affordability. I mean, education is a, um, it's a, um, it's becoming a privilege as opposed to a public good. So in my space, um, you know, I'm advocating for that. I could pretend like that's not happening, but in my space, I need to do something about that and, um, and be serious and committed about it and, and, and intentional. That's the key thing, intentional, because we can all get, like I was saying about my dad, we can all relax and say, that's not my problem. That's happening over there. It's not happening over there. It's happening to all of us. And then the question about my hope agent, you know, who is my hope agent? It is my students and my own children, my own children. When I see my children educate me on something or, or lift my veil to something that I don't see or I don't know, my own ignorance on certain topics, um, that inspires me. It makes me mad in the moment because you <laughs> to be smarter than you are and I put quotes around smarter they'll never be smarter than I am of course <laughs> in my mind so but 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 the part about them when they do something great that gives me hope because I see the action of my own raising well my husband and I raising my children raising our children um, and then my students give me that kind of hope like they're fearless sometimes and things happen they have tra trauma in their lives and they just keep going it's back to that Resilience, And I have mixed emotions about resilience because my sister, who I clearly love very much, um, she's my baby sister, but I just, I'm so proud of her. She did some work in Flint, Michigan, and she said that they had a meet with the water, the, uh, the, the challenges they have with water and good, healthy drinking water. So she said to me that in a meeting that they were having, when someone said, this community is so resilient. And she said there was a black woman that stood up and said, when does resilience become abuse? Mm. Like how long do we have to be resilient? And then at some point it becomes abusive. And so the same thing with my own people and my own institution. People always say, Houston Tillerson is really resilient. And I think I've begun to think about now the word resilience has begun to become something different for me. Like I begin to think, well, how long do we have to be resilient? Why can't we just be thriving and prosperous? and not have to continue to claw our way forward. So young people, my own children, and well, they're, they're, not, they're adults, they pay taxes. Um, my own children and my, my students, they, they, they are my hope agents. Gosh, you have given us so much to chew on, really. I'm, I'm uh, as I, I said in the beginning, I am always inspired and challenged. And, um, and I think it's a really good caution for us to think about how we use the word resilience. Mm -hmm. And to, to um, be aware of the ways that it, it um, gets used th that can border on uh, abuse where, where um, we continue to do the same thing. We don't change our actions. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a really good challenge. And another thing that I thought of while you were talking is, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the weight of inequity. And I'm thinking about the weight of the economic disparities and health disparities. And I'm thinking about the exhaustion, frankly, of some of our pastors and uh, folks who work in the nonprofit sector who are feeling that sort of fragility of their existence. And, and, um, and so I, I wonder what wisdom you would share, maybe experience that you would share that would help people reorient toward living out of a sense of hope? 
So I'll have a, a moment of vulnerability, um, which is always dangerous, but <laughs> I am like Mackenzie Scott just recently announced a series of huge donations to yes. several historically black colleges. I'm very happy for my brother and sister presidents who made those lists. And But when I saw it, I felt like someone had punched me in my stomach mm. because we weren't there. And it made me cry. Mm. And then I realized that I'm super strong. And I realized, like, why is that? It made me mad <laughs> and because Prairie View got $40 million and they have a $140 million endowment. They're a part of the Texas A&M system. They have tremendous resources. They just got another large gift. So I felt like a... Like, like, like a loser, you know, mm. so then I'm normally very strong. And then I got, I had to get myself together and I was, I was sharing with someone about, they sent me the list and I got frustrated with them. Like, why are you sending me this list? I saw it. I don't need this in my text messages. Like stop asking me, why didn't we get it? I don't know. It's random. Like no one knows why certain schools were chosen, but, but we weren't. And we have such deep needs. So it felt unfair. And I felt very discouraged in that moment. So I had to collect myself and refocus myself. That wasn't my gift in that moment. And I believe very strongly what God has for Houston Tillerson, he has for us. So if I give up and I said, well, I'm mad at a woman I don't even know. You know what I'm saying? Who who is doing wonderful things for a lot of people? Like like my God, she's an angel. Where does she store her wings? Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy for my you know these many of these people that got those. They're my friends. I know them. So I was super happy for them. So you know you always say yay, like you're like you're happy, but you're not happy. I'm happy for them, but I'm not happy for me. Like why did I get the award? Like when you win, someone compete and someone wins first place, you're like congratulations. So that's was my so that's like a really like I was a it was a very vulnerable moment for me as the president of HT because I feel like we're doing great things we're phenomenal like why wouldn't someone want to invest in us but I can't give up I I just have to recollect myself and I have to I have to accept my humanity hmm. I have to accept my weaknesses my vulnerability and then lean into what I say that I believe and remind myself and stay armored up in that mm-hmm. and pray up in that so that when my when our blessing does manifest itself pressed down and running over we will be able to receive it and we'll and they'll have a strong leader not someone who crumbled because we didn't get something that i felt like we quote unquote deserved because what does that really mean and you know your you, your blessing comes when you're ready for it um, and and it it's comes in a way that you never would have ever imagined it. So my message to people and even to my own staff has been, um, okay, that wasn't for us. So we got to keep working hard because in the meantime, we've decided to stay online and we got a million dollar gap to close. So I can't, you know, I can't be over here having this pity party over here. Woe is Colette and, you know, I'm a loser. Why don't we get it? Because I'm not. And we're not. We're still the same institution we were three days ago. And we still got the same challenges, the same gifts, the same blessings. So stay focused on our mission, on where we're going and the students that we serve so that we can continue to be um, moving from moving into a place of thriving so that we're postured to receive that gift whenever we receive it. Oh, yeah, that is so good. 
I, first of all, thank you for being vulnerable with mm-hmm. us. I mean, we're all experiencing different aspects of, or some variation of that story of vulnerability or rejection or loss or fragility. I mean, we're in some way we're right there. And, and so thank you. And, and what I'm hearing you say is so valuable. And that is remember who you are and remember your calling, your purpose, your sense of, of, uh, what it is that God is asking of us and, and stay true to that. Stay true to that. And I, I love that. I think we all have, are dealing with a lot of fear. Hmm. Um, we, we surveyed our students and what's their, what's their barrier right now? And I was shocked that along with technology, um, another one was, they called it just fear. It says fear of the unknown, mm. you know, like in, we've, we've lived through nine 11 and I, you know, I was born in the sixties. I was born in the fifties, but I lived, I grew up in the sixties. So I've had these tumultuous moments in our lives that we've been exposed to. So you see a tomorrow, you know, you see tomorrow, you see it, it's going to happen. Um, but when you're 18, 18, 19 years old and you got a mask up and your uncle got COVID and died. You can't, someone, you couldn't go to a funeral. You don't, you just think about young people in this era and that is fearful. So, so we need to hug each other, even albeit virtually. And also it's a, it's a gift that this happened now, as opposed to 10 years ago when we didn't have a zoom. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, you know, a robust, our, we didn't, and not, and now, and also recognize that not everybody. The internet is not a um, utility. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't have the internet or don't right. have that technology. So when we have the fortune of touching each other virtually, we have to take advantage of that and just check on people. And also, we can't call each other. I tell my staff all the time. You know, you can still like use the old school stuff where you can call someone to say, "Hey," so you can so that they can hear your voice and you, you know, you checked on them just to to love up on them to to do what you can to alleviate people's fears. And once again, the, you know, that word appears that you give people hope and that's an action. Mm-hmm. And, and a reminder that we're not alone. We're not. I mean, that's, yeah. Right. Right. So the last thing that we're asking all our guests to do is to complete these three sentences. It's sort of a, a rapid fire round, if you will. So just first thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? Okay. okay here's the first resilience is contradictory. Mm. When I think of resilience, I think of my family, um, my own people, um, um, and and our history. Mm-hmm. The need for me to learn as much of it as possible. And if you want to cultivate resilience, stay prayed up. <laughs> nice. <laughs> stay armored up. Stay prayed up, and um, stay open. Nice. Well said. Well said. Thank you so much, Dr. Pierce Burnett. You are a gift. Thank you. That was such a good conversation with Dr. Pierce Burnett. And so as we end this episode on the Reservoirs of Hope, Bishop, what are your reflections or takeaways from today? 
Well, two thoughts come to my mind. I love the way she talked about hope and and hope that is connected to change, to adaptation, to moving forward. It reminded me of John Lewis and the way that he always saw hope as a driver, a movement toward action. And, and yeah. those themes were so strong in what she had to say. Yeah, it really, I, I found myself... Um, really thinking more deeply about hope. Like the things she said gave hope some texture. Um, We tend to think of hope as sort of a a fluffy concept and she made it really gritty. Like this notion of um, hope is always a call to action, that it's not actually hope if you're not doing something about it. Like if you're not leaning into this, this new reality that you are imagining, um, that is always connected to change and to potential that, anyway, it, it, it really made hope kind of a, a, a gritty concept for me. I, I love the way she talked about it. I, me too. I, I love that too. The place that it just caught me up short in what she had to say and was um, a convicting moment um, was when she quoted um, her sister in um, asking the question, when does resilience become abuse? And by that, she was meaning, um, you know, when persons in positions of power um, or influence then, um, quote, compliment, that's in quotes, uh, someone for being resilient when really what it's about, it's a label that's used to perpetuate the status quo, to make sure that People in power stay in power, and others who are underserved, under-resourced stay that way. And I found myself asking, I I tend to think of resilience as a positive, but now this is a whole nother aspect of resilience. And I found myself thinking about times and places when... um, and when I might have used resilience in this far more abusive way without even realizing it. Yeah, it's a really important challenge for us, especially as we think about what it means to be a resilient leader and how we treat our pastors and our churches and and the people around us in our communities. I think it's a it's a really important caution. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been really good to be with you. And as we end our time together, I want to thank you all for listening. And if you've received some nourishment from this podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends. Leave us a review. Until next time, may you drink deeply from the reservoirs of hope, purpose, and courage. Reservoirs of Resilience is a production of TMF's Leadership Ministry with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Billy Crockett. Listen to more of Billy's music on YouTube and on billycrockett.com. Make sure to view our show notes and website for more information about all of our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at TMF's Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.